Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. As you'll soon hear uh, on today's podcast, we're talking about the bill SESTA again, uh, but we made a small mistake while discussing it, which I wanted to clarify here in this intro. Uh, at one point while discussing the process to getting the final bill approved, uh, Emma mentions briefly that after a revised bill would go through a conference process between the House and the Senate to, to make the bills agree that it wouldn't need to be voted on again. Uh, but as she explained afterwards via email, that's not actually correct. Uh, the revised bill, assuming it's not the exact same bill that was originally approved, would require a new vote, uh, though it's likely that such a vote is mostly a formality. Uh, but since uh, we explained it incorrectly during the podcast, I wanted to clarify that. Anyways, uh, now on to the uh, podcast discussion. Thanks. The world is increasingly technological. We have better get methodical Bringing precision to critical digital journalism With the singular vision of a modern monocle Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll Document the ways that they aim to take control Scrutinise and do their lies and make them fold If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt To grab a shovel and dig up the tech If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt To grab a shovel and dig up the tech uh, as a reminder for those of you who back us on Patreon, please uh, send in questions that you have that we can answer on a backers-only episode that will be coming up some point in the future. Uh, and if you don't back us on Patreon, uh, you should think about it and <laughs> go check it out at patreon.com slash for today's podcast, we are discussing a topic that we only <laughs> just discussed a few months ago, and I was hoping we wouldn't need to revisit quite so quickly. Um, unfortunately, last week, the House of Representatives voted to approve its version of SESTA and send things back to the Senate. Uh, for those not following these issues closely, uh, I will give a little bit of background. Um and it basically is that there were some very bad bills <laughs> targeting Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that were introduced in both the House and Senate last year. Uh, ostensibly, both of these bills were targeting the fact that sex traffickers had used the Internet to engage in sex trafficking. Uh, the authors of these bills admitted that the laws were very much targeting one platform in particular, which is Backpage.com. Uh, which is a company that is still facing possible criminal charges and which another court may soon say is not actually protected by CD230 anyways. Uh, and also Backpage has already shut down its adult ad section. Uh, and two years ago, we passed another law targeting Backpage.com that was never used. None of that seemed to matter. These laws had to move forward. So the Senate approved SESTA late last year, and we did a podcast on why that bill was so problematic. Uh, and then after that, uh, after some valiant efforts by different people talking it over, the House decided to go with a very different approach, uh, replacing its originally proposed bill with something called FOSTA, uh, which created a uh, new crime under anti-prostitution uh, laws. Uh, that bill had its own problems, including expanding what it was targeting to prostitution rather than just trafficking, uh, but had a number of features that actually made it preferable to SESTA, I think. Some people disagree with that. Um, those pushing to gut CDA 230 entirely, however, insisted that it wasn't enough and can somehow uh, recently convinced House leadership to fast-track things by 
presenting an amendment uh, by Representative Mimi Walters that basically just bolted SESTA directly onto FOSTA, so you now had both bills together in one. Uh, this created what Professor Eric Goldman has called the worst of both worlds bill. Uh, and then the, that amendment and the combined bill were then rushed to a vote on the floor uh, last week. And despite not going through any of the standard committee process for the amendment, which certainly rankled some, uh, but not enough to stop anything. So um, in the end, uh, basically the House passed it 388 to 25. That was even though the Justice Department had sent a letter basically warning that parts of the bill might be unconstitutional and it had some other problems with the bill. Uh, but anyways, that's where we stand right now. Today we have two guests to talk about what has happened, what happens now, why things got this messy, and what we're going to do about it. Um, first up, we have Emma Lonso uh, from the Center for Democracy and Technology, who was on our last SESTA podcast and who is an expert on CDA 230 and all things related to that. And we also have, for the first time, Professor Eric Goldman uh, from Santa Clara University, who, as noted earlier, uh, called this the worst of both worlds bill. Goldman has been a key voice on CDA 230 and intermediary liability issues uh, for many, many years, writing papers, editing collections, running conferences, and even testifying before the Senate specifically about SESTA. So uh, welcome to the show, guys. It's great Thank to be you. back. Glad to be here. Uh, so Eric, I'm going to start with you since you um, dubbed this bill the worst of both worlds. Uh, why do you think that the combination is worse than either bill alone? Yeah, it's a good point uh, because uh, the FOSTA as uh, drafted by the House Judiciary Committee um, was not the most objectionable bill we've seen. I can't go as far as praising it, but it wasn't a bill that uh, caused me to lose sleep as much as the initial version of FOSTA did or the Senate's uh, efforts did. Um, and so, in theory, bolting that onto SESTA should uh, be as non-objectionable or lightly objectionable as it was um, when it was a standalone bill. Mm -hmm. um, but I will point out that the bill still is objectionable. It uh, sweeps in a broad array of advertising and promotional activities far beyond the sex trafficking context and picks up a lot of things that um, uh, we might not have thought might be covered um, under the heading of uh, prostitution facilitation or promotion. Um, and so for that reason and others, uh, I think that the bill is problematic. Um, and certainly the SESTA language is problematic because it creates what we're going to talk about presumably later, mm -hmm. the moderator's dilemma. Um, so we're taking two bad things and putting them together. So that alone <laughs> is enough to uh, cause a problem. But the real problem, I think, is uh, whether the bill will help address sex trafficking. And the combination of the two different provisions sends mixed signals to um, uh, to any sites that are trying to comply with the laws. On the one hand, um, they uh, uh, won't be liable for uh, advertising for prostitution unless they have an intent to promote it. Um, but, uh, but with respect to sex trafficking, they're going to face liability uh, uh, based on, uh, uh, in some cases, what they know. And so to the extent that um, we want service providers going and trying to clean up the Internet, 
the knowledge-based standard undermines not only the sex trafficking objectives with the SESTA piece, but it might also undermine or, or thwart some of the, um, uh, the uh, policing efforts we, we might have expected people to undertake with the substitute foster version as well. Yeah, and, and I think, so, I mean, taking a step back, um, it, it feels to me that many of the people pushing the bill don't really understand how CDA 230 operates. Um, there seems to be this, this impression that, that CDA 230, because it includes what is often referred to as kind of a blanket immunity, which is not entirely blanket, um, but, a, but a pretty broad immunity, that that means nobody does anything. Um, and therefore, um, you know, we need to do this in order to force the platforms to do something, which is basically policing the content and getting rid of illegal content. But that's not really how CDA 230 works, right? Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, Section 230 um, is designed to allow sites to undertake efforts to police and remove bad content without fearing liability for all the other content that they don't choose to screen out. And because of that, uh, Section 230 has motivated um, uh, sites to undertake a fair amount of content moderation efforts. Um, that's an integral part of all legitimate players' uh, offerings today to clean up and remove bad content. And so um, the uh, some advocates of the bill, I think, thought that um, sites were doing nothing and therefore uh, they were free riding on this legislative protection when in fact it's the legislative protection that was encouraging all the efforts that we're currently benefiting from today. Right. And, and you know, I, I think we've discussed some of this before, but Emma, I know you and, and others at CDT have been talking about this as well, is that, you know, having the intermediary liability protections like those in, in CDA 230 helps protect free speech online. And, and there are some pretty big concerns about how this might negatively impact free speech, right? Right. Um, 230 is absolutely essential to intermediaries being willing to deal with all of our speech. Um, if you think of the sheer amount of information um, and uploads that are posted to even a small user-generated content site, um, it's content that is well in excess of what any intermediary could possibly kind of do pre-publication review. They can't vet all of the posts or all of the comments before they go up unless you have really long moderating queues, you know, big teams of moderators, or just a very small amount of content going up generally. So 230 ensures that a website isn't going to, you know, after the fact, after letting you post something on their service, um, that intermediary isn't going to get hauled into court because it turns out you posted something that was defamatory or, you know, somehow violated the law. Um, that's an incredibly important protection. It's the the only thing I think that, you know, makes hosting third-party content really a viable sort of business. Um, but it also, and, you know, to the point about does Congress really understand what all 230 does, the protections of Section 230 are also what enable content hosts and platforms to moderate a lot of what is constitutionally protected speech. Um, you know, any platform or comment section or social media site that has a rule against posting pornography um, or that takes down nasty or vicious or bullying content or that has a rule against hate speech, those platforms are 
taking down what is almost certainly speech that's protected under our constitution. That's not speech that Congress can go after through any kind of law. Um, but it is speech that, you know, for the interest of having a, a functional discussion community or presenting a certain kind of, of service or experience to a user base, that many platforms moderate this kind of content. So I think there's a lot of work that happens under the protections of Section 230 that isn't really generally appreciated because it has been part of our internet ecosystem for so long, you know, over two decades at this point, um, that that kind of role that it plays in really actually giving providers the ability to help shape functional discussion communities online, um, it's really not very well appreciated. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, especially right now where we've, we've seen a bunch of lawsuits, including some very recently, um, sort of attacking platforms for you know, choosing to shut down accounts or or to take down certain um, certain speech, and and for the most part, those actions are actually protected by two thirty. Um, and most, I mean, a lot of these cases are relatively new, so we don't have rulings on them. But but almost all of them, I think, um, in theory, should be protected by by two thirty. Um, and it is what what allows these platforms to actually um, exist in, in a in a reasonable, you know a reasonable form. Um, and I kind of wonder like, you know, how, how terrible the world would look, you know, if, if you couldn't, I mean, you, you would, you would have all sorts of weird incentives, um, you know, as, as a platform host. Um, and I, I mean, it's one thing, you know, I, I've wrote about this just in terms of like being a very small platform host with Tector where we have third party comments, um, you know, and we have like spam filters and things like that. And, and, and a system of voting that that will you know sort of vote down certain comments um you know that that makes our comment system usable but now i have to wonder you know more carefully about what you know what happens if 230 goes away or changes in a significant manner it's not like we normally get you know sex trafficking comments but we do get spam that i think you know is is potentially um, you know, some of the spam is linking to sites that are potentially related to, to prostitution or sex trafficking. Most of those are caught by our spam filter. But what happens if, if one gets through? Um, and suddenly I don't, I don't know if I'm opening myself up to criminal liability, um, you know, based on, on these legal changes. Exactly. And there's, I, I think one of the interesting slash deeply concerning pieces of the whole, especially the SESTA-FOSTA hybrid bill that the House just passed, is that, you know, if this is what becomes the law, there are multiple different potential federal crimes for an intermediary to be charged with, um, kind of around sex trafficking. There's the right. traditional or the, the pre-existing federal sex trafficking prohibition, Section 1591. Um, and, and that's where, that's the part of the bill that has this knowledge standard um, that, that Eric was talking about, that was sort of added on to a couple of knowledge standards that exist already in that crime so that it's it's even a little bit hard to figure out exactly in what circumstances an intermediary could be charged with what. Um, the, the underlying statute makes a distinction between advertising and um, other kinds of verbs that a an intermediary might do, like uh, promoting or soliciting or... Um, promoting uh, sex trafficking uh, in, a, in mm -hmm. a way that I'm not exactly sure what prosecutors might do with that. Um, but so there's that sort of set of potential 
sex trafficking charges. And then there's what the FOSTA part of the bill did with um, creating the federal crime of promotion, intentional promotion or facilitation of prostitution with reckless disregard that that facilitated trafficking activity. So that's a sort of brand new way to kind of find that an intermediary was involved with trafficking. Um, and it hinges on this, on the one hand, pretty high standard of, of intent to promote prostitution, um, but then all of a sudden sort of doing that with reckless disregard that trafficking happened is um, a much lower standard as far as kind of a involvement in trafficking goes. So, you know, that's all to say, I think it's going to be confusing for intermediaries. What exactly is the kind of behavior that could um, run them afoul of federal criminal law related to trafficking? Because there will be a lot of different potential paths for prosecutors to take. Yeah. And I think, I mean, some of that gets to the fact that, you know, it does feel that this bill was sort of not drafted very carefully um, and and not with uh, enough thought towards how all of it works together. Eric, I know that, you know, among the, the I believe it was along with the testimony that, that you had presented, you had even suggested some language that, that could potentially be added to the bill that would have fixed some of the problems, right? Uh, I did propose some language that uh, tried to reiterate that um, taking efforts to screen out bad content won't be counted uh, against uh, the defendant for anything that they missed. Um, and that's the way the law works today. Um, I'm not sure it will work if the law is adopted. And so I thought, let's just make that point really clear because everyone kept saying that would be the deal. Uh, but sadly, uh, that did not get introduced as an amendment. Uh, and unless the Senate chooses to pick it up, uh, when they see the bill again, um, that's probably not going to be added. And 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 that language is basically to help deal with the, what what you refer to as the moderator's dilemma. Do you want to sort of? I know we've sort of discussed some of it, but do you want to get specifically into what is the moderator's dilemma? Yeah, the idea is that um, the uh, a liability based on what a service provider knows about their content is likely to force the uh, service provider into one of two uh, extremes. Uh, one extreme is that they say they assume that they know everything that's in their content database and they accept full liability accordingly. And if that's the case, um, some risk might be mitigated by insurance. Uh, some risk, risk might be mitigated through uh, the voting systems like uh, Mike was describing. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, the main way of mitigating that, mitigating that risk would be through um, actually pre-screening the content. And this would look very much like the traditional publication models of the offline world, newspapers or broadcasters. They pre-screen everything and they accept full responsibility for what they publish. Um, the other extreme would be to, to do everything in the defendant's power not to know what's in their uh, content database. If the legal standard is knowledge that triggers liability, if the defendant can show that they lacked knowledge, whatever that means, uh, then they won't be liable. And that would likely lead a site to um, uh, uh, to do basically as little as possible um, to remove content, to evaluate content, to screen content, um, to, to avoid anything that might uh, signal knowledge. Um, so the moderator's dilemma is that if you try and fail, you can end up worse off than if you never tried at all. 
and we want to overcome the moderator's dilemma to encourage sites to try with the idea that we know they're going to fail because they cannot establish perfect content moderation, um, but we'll accept that failure as the price of them trying. And uh, the proposed uh, bill uh, would reinstate the moderator's dilemma. And I say reinstate because that might have been the law before the enactment of Section 230. Um, and uh, and then force a bunch of uh, force many sites to make choices that they haven't had to make over the last 22 years. Right. And then there's also I mean, there's no case law to go along with that unless you go back, you know, to, to pre 230 days. So we're talking, you know, more than 20 years ago um, when even the case law that's that's there is not particularly well developed. Right. Yeah, there were only a couple of cases that were really on uh, point, um, and in particular, the the case that caused or sparked Congress to act in uh, 1995 really embraced the moderator's dilemma uh, uh, piece of it. It said, you tried, uh, and it's told the defendant in that case project, you tried, you didn't get this particular item of objectionable content, you have to accept liability for that. And Congress, in its wisdom at the time, realized that isn't the deal we want. We we, yeah. we need to do better than that. Um, yeah, yeah. It would be it would be bad to go back to that world, um, especially when talking about you know content as as serious as as in this case. Um, so so let's talk about a little bit, I guess, about where where the bill is now, right? So it was. So this new sort of combined bill was, was approved by the House and, and voted on by a huge margin. It was like 388 to 25. Um, it now goes back to the Senate. The Senate has passed um, its version of just SESTA without the, the FOSTA component. Uh, or uh, uh, did the Senate pass or just pass out of committee? Right? Uh, just out of committee. Just out of committee, sorry. Uh, um, and so... So something would still need to come to floor, come to the floor in the Senate, and um, it would have to do something to to figure out if it's going to just match the House bill, or it could propose something else, and they, it goes to conference, or, or what is what is next? Yeah, it's it's a good question, um, in part because this you know this letter from DOJ that was uh, released you know a couple hours before the proceedings on the House floor um, came into play, so the House didn't really have the opportunity to respond to the concerns that Department of Justice was raising. Um, and, and let's uh, let's take a uh, take a step back and explain what what concerns the Justice Department raised, sort of at a high level, because they, they sort of brought up a couple different concerns, right? Yeah. Um, so the Department of Justice at basically the eleventh hour, um, when the House was considering the hybrid SESTA FOSTA bill. Uh, sent a letter that uh, articulated concerns with a couple of different provisions in the combined bill. Um, one was that, and I think this is very relevant for Congress to consider, they actually thought that the one of the amendments to existing um, prohibition against sex trafficking would make it more difficult for prosecutors to bring cases um, under that provision. Which seems to go, uh, so go against the, the, what, what people, the backers of the bill claim was the entire purpose of the bill, right? Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it would <laughs> if if the Department of Justice is saying this will make our job harder, it's hard to see how this is a kind of pro prosecutors right. bill or giving them tools that they're looking for. Now, you know, even with that, SESTA does still also um, enable state attorneys general right. to get into the mix um, in a way that they had not been before and 
are not able to do under 230 as it stands now. So it's, I guess you could claim it's like, it's better for states to have even a difficult way to enforce <laughs> the federal trafficking law. Um, but in any case, Department of Justice said that, you know, by defining participation in a venture to include this knowledge standard, um, to say that it, you know, that means knowingly participate, uh, assisting, supporting, or facilitating a trafficking venture, that was just like another element that they were going to have to prove in in bringing a case. Um, and that I, I assume it's, you know, it's easier for them or it seems easier for them if what it means to participate in a venture is left a little bit vague and um, up to kind of establishing that in any particular case. Um, so that's, you know, that's a interesting claim um, or interesting consideration. Um, the DOJ had also pointed out in their letter uh, a pretty glaring constitutional issue that one of the um, provisions that had been in SESTA that got added to the hybrid House-FOSTA-SESTA uh, House bill um, was a provision that actually violates the ex post facto clause of the Constitution because it says, you know, the law will go into effect when it is signed and will apply to conduct that happened before the law went into effect. Um, and that's just a, a pretty basic no, no, as far as rule of law goes, you can't retroactively criminalize activity. Um, and right. it's, you know, it's to kind of give a sense of, of why this would be such a big deal if this weren't blatantly unconstitutional and certain to get struck down by a court if it does make it into law is under the structure of FOSTA, SESTA with this clause, um, you know, a, a platform that say, uh, you know, eight years ago was facing charges of intentionally facilitating prostitution could be now liable for federal criminal prosecution or prosecution by state attorneys general, which means that the uh, case of Dart versus Craigslist, where the Cook County, Illinois Sheriff um, Tom Dart tried to bring a lawsuit against Craigslist back in 2009 for facilitating prostitution by having an adult services section on its website. Um, suddenly, if, you know, if all of this went into this SESTA-FOSTA hybrid went into effect um, with this retroactivity clause, you know, that case would be basically up for grabs again. You'd have a state attorney right. general being able to prosecute a classified ad site like Craigslist for having had eight years ago an adult services section and kind of take it to a court to say, does this meet the standard of intent to facilitate prostitution um, under even this new even law? though it was it was deemed legal eight right. years ago? Even or though when Dart brought his case back in two thousand nine, it was you know, quickly dismissed on Section 230 ground saying, you know, this, they're not liable for user generated content. And that's the potentially unlawful thing here. You know, having a service, a section of your website that says adult services does not itself violate the law. So the, the content that Craigslist was providing was not um, unlawful. Any of the potential illegality had to do with user generated content. And oh, by the way, state level prosecutors can't bring criminal charges against websites in any case. So there right. were a, a number of problems with the um, DART prosecution in 2009 against Craigslist, but the House bill would actually, you know, change all of those underlying um, underlying issues. And so so that's a to give you a sense of like what it what kinds of sites are we talking about potentially facing prosecution under these bills? 
it's sites like Craigslist. It's, I would assume, any dating app that's out there is going to, at the very least, have to think really hard about how they indicate they are not attempting to facilitate prostitution in enabling people to connect with each other in, you know, romantic situations. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that that was that was kind of a tangent. We we started to discuss what happens in the Senate now. We were just noting that that there was this last minute DOJ thing. So now it goes to the Senate. The Senate, at least in theory, has more time to consider the DOJ's concerns. Right. So you know, one one thing that could happen, and I'd say should happen, is the Senate Judiciary Committee could get involved. Um, you know the. SESTA, as it's on its own, has passed out of the Senate Commerce Committee. Um, And so, you know, there'd be some particular procedural wrangling to achieve this. But one option is for the whole thing to end up, you know, reconsidered by Senate Judiciary Committee and maybe take the opportunity to fix some of the uh, glaring constitutional issues, um, like the ex post (laughs) facto thing, uh, maybe be responsive to what DOJ has said about the definition of participation in a venture. And, you know, in our wildest dreams, maybe address some of the many, many issues that free expression and innovation advocates have been bringing up for, you know, the past six months or so. Um, Right. But, you know, it is also possible for the Senate to do none of that and to, um, you know, instead try to do something pretty similar to what we saw in the House where, you know, the FOSTA provisions of um, the House bill get incorporated into SESTA, uh, you know, kind of in a very quick process that doesn't leave a lot of room for, for negotiation or debate and then have that all voted on by the Senate. Um, and I, I guess the the other option would be Senate just passes the bill that was cleared out of the Senate Commerce Committee. So that would just be SESTA without the intent to facilitate prostitution language and then have the differences between the bills resolved in a conference committee, you know, after each house has basically passed their own bill, then in a, a closed door process, um, you know, representatives from each side would try to work out the differences between the bills. Right. And then something would come out of that. Would it have to be revoted on? Um, no. After the, the conference committee would be the sort of the agreement of this is how the differences between these bills are resolved. I see. And then it would go to the president who would most likely sign mm-hmm. it. Okay. Um and then, then we see who gets sued. <laughs> it's, it would be the the next unfortunate part of that process, I guess. Right. I mean, then I that is that is a big question, right? I mean, as we've seen before, um, you know, twenty years ago when Congress passed the Communications Decency Act, one of the very first things to happen was that you know groups brought a legal challenge to that bill, um, right. challenge its constitutionality. I think there's certainly a chance that that happens um, with SESTA and FOSTA, uh, whether right. that's a kind of broad brush facial challenge, you know, challenge the whole law at once before it's been enforced, or whether that waits until, you know, a prosecutor, federal or state brings a case against a website, and then the constitutional claims start coming up. Um, you know, I think that that remains to be seen. But right. the... the you know, if we take a step back, the whole point of either of these bills, of all of these approaches, is to make it easier for federal and state prosecutors to prosecute websites and to make it easier for civil litigants to bring damages claims against websites. So I have to assume that more 
litigation will be the outcome of these bills. Right, right, right. And and it's important to know, I mean, everyone has talked about from the very beginning that these bills were targeting Backpage in particular. Um, and of course, as I mentioned, Backpage has already shut down their adult services. Their claims that some of it has just moved to other sections of Backpage. Um, but, you know, Backpage is, everybody claims, so it's, I guess, not public that there's um, a grand jury investigation going on because the DOJ could already go after Backpage. And then also there are considerations as to whether or not Backpage itself is, you know, doesn't really have 230 immunity because it, it's apparently or allegedly created some of the content, right? Right. Um, that's the case coming up, I believe, in Massachusetts, um, looking at, you know, the ability for uh, for victims to bring damages claims against Backpage and actually defeating some of Section 230's protections by saying this isn't about user-generated content, it's about content that uh, Backpage developed and developed what was unlawful about the content. Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it does feel at least a little odd that nobody's willing to wait to see how those processes play themselves out. Um, yeah. it, the the conspiracy-minded folks uh, among our listeners may wonder if the whole point of this was not necessarily to go after this one particular company, but to punch a giant hole in 230 to punish other companies. Um, but that might be a little bit of tinfoil hatting. Well, I mean, I think it's, <laughs> I, I don't think it's been any secret that state attorneys general have wanted to be able to bring prosecutions against website operators for a long time. Um, there, yeah. you know, there's a, actually a letter from, over 50 states attorneys general, uh, because the territories have their AGs too, um, yep. asking Congress to just exempt all state criminal prosecutions from Section 230 protection uh, back in 2013, right? So it was, and it was sort of presented as this is a very minor change. We're just asking for right. two words to be added to the existing um, exemption for federal criminal law. Just say federal and state criminal law, you know, 230 doesn't apply. Um, that didn't go anywhere in Congress and, you know, that, which was a very good thing, um, because that would have right. put every single state criminal law, um, potentially into play for being applied against intermediaries of all sorts. You know, that would, that would have completely changed the dynamics for hosting third party content. Um, but you know, state AGs have wanted to be able to prosecute for a long time. Uh, you know, DART, I don't think DART was the only, uh, you know, sheriff or sort of state official um, to right. to try to bring a suit against a site like Craigslist. Um, so yeah. I think that combination they're, they're, of yeah. empowering state attorneys general and also going after prostitution more generally, I think that's a big piece of this. And, you, you know, I, you, we were talking earlier about how FOSTA really expanded the scope of, of what's on the table here from focusing on, you know, knowing facilitation of sex trafficking to promotion of prostitution. There's a lot more, um, you know, yeah. online activity that either is actual promotion of prostitution or is sort of maybe adjacent to it, or at least questionable enough that a, a website operator might get nervous um, that, you know, I think the the potential impact with the prostitution language now is much greater and sweeps in a lot more speech. Yeah. And, and I mean, the other example, I mean, we've talked about Sheriff Dart a, a couple of times, but like you know, the other example that gets brought up is, is the Jim Hood example being the attorney general from, uh, where is it? 
I'm suddenly blanking. I mean, he's from Mississippi, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and where this was as came out in the, the Sony hack and the emails that the MPAA had basically gone around searching for state attorneys general to, to basically, um, you know, figure out some way to, to do fishing expeditions on Google and to, to um, demand all sorts of stuff and threaten them if they don't more proactively filter stuff. So, you know, he wrote this letter and a subpoena demanding all sorts of information because he found, he did some searches and found links to, you know, um, uh, counterfeit drugs and, you know, I forget what else, but probably also like prostitution and, and other stuff, anything bad. Um, and, you know, and, and Google sort of hit back on, on two thirty grounds, basically saying, look, you know, uh, it, for very good reason, being that like, you know, what the search engine finds is not the, what the search engine endorses. Right. And, and that seems to be something that is difficult for some people to understand. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine a world where after this, the Jim Hoods of the world are sort of free to go on pretty serious fishing expeditions on basically any Internet website. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and I'd love to hear from Eric on this, too. But what really concerns me is, you know, the, the facilitation of prostitution crime focuses on intent. Right. And that on, in some respects, that's a that's a really strong standard. Right. To demonstrate that you have the intent to facilitate this criminal activity. Um, but I from a free speech standpoint, I worry about what lengths are website operators going to feel they have to go to to demonstrate their lack of intent, right? Like it, how much are we gonna get kind of dragged into a situation where it's not just, you know, you can sit there running your service, no particular intent to promote prostitution, but also not aggressively policing against the risk of anything related to prostitution. Does that put you at risk for a lawsuit or for criminal charges? Um, you know, are we going to see this turn into something where website operators really feel compelled in order to stay on the right side of the law to aggressively pursue anything that has the slightest hint of a solicitation to it. Um, and I imagine that's, you know, that that's going to be difficult enough as it is. And when we start thinking about employing, you know, automated filters um, and, and different efforts to just try to keep anything vaguely related to potential prostitution off of a site, you're going to end up sweeping in a lot of discussions of sex and sexuality, let alone like sex workers rights advocacy um, or right. material, you know, coming advice and recommendations coming out of the harm reduction community that looks at how to make sure that sex workers are, you know, as um, safe and well-informed as they possibly can be. You know, there's really important speech out there that is related to sex work and prostitution that shouldn't be, um, you know, policed under this bill, but almost certainly is going to be swept up because it's kind of adjacent to something that is now incredibly risky for platforms to host. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely seems like a big concern. Um, so um, on, on that note, uh, <laughs> we are uh, basically out of time, but um, uh, th there's obviously plenty going on with this bill, plenty of stuff to pay attention to, uh, unfortunately. Um, and we will certainly have more on it, but, uh, Eric and Emma, thank you for joining us on the podcast and, thank uh, thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next week. Huh. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat. Huh. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Huh. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat. Huh. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat.